Section 2 of The Book of Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sally Sharp at www.soundsharp.com. The Book of Wales by Frank Evers Bedard. Section 2 A Book of Wales. Chapter 1 The External Form of Wales. Size of Wales. Since the most obvious characteristic of the whale tribe is their large, occasionally colossal bulk, we cannot do better than commence with this salient peculiarity. Whales vary in length from barely four feet, pontoporia, to as much as eighty or eighty-five, balaenoptera sibaldi. But their dimensions have been grossly exaggerated by modern writers, as well as by the ancients, for whom there was more excuse. It is an unquestionable fact that no creature known to science ever existed, which was larger than the largest whale. Even the colossal dinosaurs of the secondary epoch fell some feet short of Balaenoptera sibaldi. As a consequence, size is the one thing that is expected of a whale. Actual length measurements have been swollen by taking into account the bulging sides of the Katakians, and with this help some astounding dimensions have received the sanction of not specially credulous persons. One Ochther, a Norwegian, reported to King Alfred that the best whales caught in his own country were as much as fifty yards long. This is some diminution from Pliny, who held that in the Indian Sea the fish called balina or whirlpool is so long and broad as to take up more length and breadth than two acres of ground. 900 feet is another measurement given by the same natural historian, but the size of whales by no means decreased with the advance of the centuries. Olaus Magnus allowed 960 feet in length to certain hirsute whales, but when the latter authority comes down to definite and recorded fact, he is more careful with such measurements. In a section of his well-known work, Olaus Magnus figures a monstrous Pisces, stranded on the northern shores of England in the year 1532, which was naturally regarded as a portent. This animal, or another, seen by the archbishop on the Norwegian shore, was ninety feet in length, a measurement which may conceivably have been accurate since it seems to have been a balaenoptera, which is known to reach 85 feet in length. Apart, however, from all exaggeration, it is evident that whales are not only the largest of living mammals, but the largest of all animals, mammalian or otherwise, which have ever existed. It is interesting to inquire into the reasons for their excess of bulk over the animal world in general, 
there are various causes which seem to contribute to the acquisition of a mighty frame in the first place the medium in which the animal lives must have something to do with it aquatic creatures have naturally less difficulty in sustaining a colossal bulk than have animals which live in a less dense medium we find in fact a distinct relation between size and habitat the blue shark carcharius remarked the late professor milnes marshall attains a length of twenty-five feet specimens of carcharodon have been measured over forty feet in length while of the genus rhinodon examples of fifty sixty or even seventy feet in length have been described purely volant animals bats birds and pterodactyls have far greater difficulties in sustaining themselves in the air hence these classes of animals are relatively small we may believe in ipiornis but we cannot accept a flying rock the middle position is occupied by mammals which require more muscular effort to stand or crawl than aquatic creatures but not nearly so much as aerial we find that their size is in correspondence the mastodon and the great ground sloths were larger than any pterodactyl or bird but not so large as whales the dinosaurs are thought by some to have been at least partially aquatic to have frequented at least marshes and estuaries but even if they were purely terrestrial they do not acquire absolutely the same colossal dimensions as do some whales not so intelligible as the last reason for enormous growth in size but apparently to be proved by statistics is the inference that large size is in proportion to the degree of organization of the creature the simplest of all living creatures the protozoa are at the same time the smallest vertebrates grow to a larger size than invertebrates and finally mammals as represented by whales grow to be the giants of the animal creation another favoring circumstance to large increase in size is abundance and easiness of capture of food as well as freedom from foes the tiger or lion at the expense of great expenditure of force hunts down an antelope or a deer while the whale gulps in huge mouthfuls of whale food with ease and comfort protected by its thick covering of fat it does not readily fall a victim to any foes indeed the only powerful enemy that it has at all is the killer whale orca and it is not always that a greenland whale succumbs to a shoal of those marine tigers an ingenious suggestion has been made which covers some of the apparent exaggerations in the dimensions of whales attributed to the ancients monsieur pouchet thinks that since in old times whales were not hunted at any rate to the extent that they are now and have been lately they may possibly have had the opportunity of growing to larger dimensions the sailor nearchus 
is quoted by M. Pouchet upon the size of a megaptra of the Persian Gulf. Perhaps the megaptra indica of M. Gervais referred to below. The Greek described it as 48 meters, but another rendering of the text says 23 meters, which, though large, is nearer to what we now regard as the truth. Shape of the Body In their shape, whales present a remarkable uniformity. Indeed, next to bulk, this is perhaps their most salient characteristic in the popular mind. They are all fish-like, with tapering body, big flukes, one pair of paddles, no apparent vestiges of hind limbs, no external ear, tiny eyes, and black or black-and-white coloration. Contrast this state of affairs with what obtains in many other groups of mammals. Compare the sloth and the anteater, near allies in structure to each other. One is tailless, long-limbed, short-snouted, inactive, inconspicuously colored, and with long hooked claws. The other is bushy-tailed, comparatively short-limbed, enormously long-snouted, vigorous in its motions, conspicuous in color, owing to the broad white band upon its black body, and with strong tearing claws. Or, to take an example from another group of animals, what a large difference seems to separate the active, four-legged, brightly colored green lizard from the snake-like, inactive, dully colored blindworm. And yet, they are very closely allied. But one very important reason for diversity in the two examples selected, and for uniformity in the case of the whales, will at once strike the reader. The whales live under like conditions. The other animals lead totally different lives. The sloth never leaves the trees to whose branches it clings by the help of its long, curved claws, and upon whose leaves it browses. The anteater digs up with its sharp claws the firmly welded anthills of tropical America, and licks up with its long tongue the ants which it thus disturbs. Whales, on the other hand, not only all live in the sea or in rivers, but spend a great deal of their time below the surface, and are nearly all animal feeders. Moreover, it seems to be a well-established fact that the majority of whales range freely over wide stretches of ocean, the same species occurring in such widely separated localities as Tasmania and the coast of Britain, e.g. the sperm whale, while some perform regular migrations. Hence, diverse temperatures can have but little effect in producing differences. It is an interesting fact to note that those whales which are restricted in their range are at least often more different from their allies. The members of the family Platanistidae are restricted in range and show differences among themselves. No one could confound the Platanista of the Ganges with Inia of the Amazons. Beluga and Monodon 
are peculiar types, and they are both arctic in habitat. We cannot, however, push this matter further, since, as is the case with most general statements, there are exceptions. Among those exceptions, we may note the Greenland right whale, which differs but slightly from the widely distributed Bellina australis, or Biscayanus, as it is sometimes called. The flukes of the whale, which form its tail, are set, as everyone knows, at right angles to the plane of the body, and not vertically, as in fishes. It has been noticed by several that the two halves of the tail fin have surfaces which are not precisely parallel to each other. They have, in fact, a screw-like form, one half being convex upwards, the other concave, and the use of the flukes seems to imply such a conformation. Captain Scoresby observes of the Greenland whale that it is by means of the tail principally that the whale advances through the water. The greatest velocity is produced by powerful strokes against the water, impressed alternately upward and downward, but a slower motion, it is believed, is elegantly produced by cutting the water laterally and obliquely downward, in a similar manner as a boat is forced along with a single oar in the operation of sculling. It is the latter motion, of course, that would be brought about by the slightly screw-like form of the tail fin. The tail, however, is also used in balancing, as a whale when dead falls over on its side. They are also of service in turning, and, indeed, as a weapon of offense for striking boats. This seems to be deliberate in the case of the Californian whale. A dissection of the tail shows a beautiful and elaborate complex of tendons which are attached to the muscles of the trunk. These run in all directions and so account for the varied movements of the organ. There are diverse opinions as to the nature of the whale's tail. The late Dr. Gray was strongly of opinion, as are or were some others, that this organ is to be looked upon as the degenerate equivalent of the posterior pair of limbs. It must be admitted that there is a prima facie possibility in favor of this view, which is not unattractive. We should have, on this hypothesis, the whales exhibiting the last term of a series commenced by the sea lions. It has also been pointed out that the backwardly directed rudiments of the bony hind limbs conform to such a way of regarding the matter. It seems as if they had shrunk while the folds of the integument originally connected with them had remained, forming the flukes. There are not wanting analogies to support this theory. It is known, for instance, that there are, as a rule, fewer retrices, tail feathers, in modern birds than in Archaeopteryx, where each of the free caudal vertebrae supported a pair of these strong feathers. In modern birds, the retrices 
are all attached to the terminal plowshare bone of the tail, which is produced by a fusion of not more than six or seven vertebrae. Now, as there are occasionally more than six or seven pairs of retrices, it looks much as if the epidermal structures had remained, while the corresponding skeletal structures had vanished. Again, to take an example from a widely different class, there is a lamprey with a pair of skin folds in the neighborhood of the vent, which are believed by some to represent a pair of otherwise missing hind limbs. Apart from these folds, there is no trace of limbs, no skeletal elements, that is to say. Plausible though such a derivation of the flukes of the whale may be, there are arguments which seem to be absolutely fatal to their entertainment. The tail of Foncina communis, when it first appears, is a prolongation of the body, sharply marked off from the body, and precisely, so far, like the tail of a typically tailed and terrestrial mammal. This tail has, at first, practically no lateral flanges. When these put in an appearance, they are obviously lateral expansions of the integument, and the tail has a diamond-shaped outline. It is indeed not unlike that of a manatee in general shape. It is interesting to note this fact, for the manatee is clearly an animal whose ancestors were less remotely terrestrial in habit. Finally, the characteristic flukes of the adult are acquired, but the argument which seems to conclude the matter is that in this same porpoise, coincidentally with the appearance of the lateral flanges of the tail, the supposed hind limbs be it remembered, distinct traces of those same hind limbs are visible in their proper place that is to say, considerably in front of the tail. If a further argument in the same direction be wanted, it is afforded by the analogy of the ichthyosaurus. These aquatic reptiles have been lately discovered to have possessed a dorsal fin, not unlike that of the whales, and a caudal fork, which, unlike that of the whales, was vertical in direction. Now the ichthyosaurus had undoubted hind limbs, so that there can be no question of any correspondence here. The fact, therefore, that the whale's tail, unlike that of the fish, is at right angles to the axis of the body, and so far resembles the complex tail of the seal, is no argument, even from analogy, in favor of its having a limb-like character. The ichthyosaurus has no more right to a tail than the whale, save by virtue of its being an aquatic creature. The tail is in both a secondary adaptation to the needs of their existence. We must look, as Dr. Kukenthal remarks, to the broad tail of the beaver for an analogy to the flukes of the whale. It is, however, somewhat astonishing to find that the whale, unlike the ichthyosaurus, 
which is with equal certainty derived from a terrestrial ancestor, has transverse tail fins. Astonishing, since the universality of a vertical fin in fish seems to argue its greater use as a swimming organ. The only conclusion to which this question seems to lead is that reptiles that are not so thoroughly modified for an aquatic life as the ichthyosaurus, and are yet largely or entirely aquatic, such as crocodiles and sea snakes, have a vertically compressed tail, while among mammals it is generally flattened from above downwards in such forms, instances of this being the beaver and the platypus. But this is not universal, only prevalent, for in the West African insectivore otter, Potamogale, we have a vertically compressed tail. It is possible that we may be justified in putting the question out of the category of a whale question by adopting the belief that whales have been derived from Cyrenian-like ancestors. Perhaps the ingenious Ray was nearer the truth when he wrote that, quote, In Catachius fishes, the tail hath a different position from what it hath in all other fishes, for whereas in these it is erected perpendicular to the horizon, in them it lies parallel thereto, partly to supply the use of the hinder pair of fins which these creatures lack, and partly to raise and depress the body at pleasure, for it being necessary that these fishes should frequently ascend to the top of the water to breathe or take in and let out the air, it was fitting and convenient that they should be provided with an organ to facilitate their ascent and descent as they had occasion. End quote. There can indeed be no reasonable doubt but that this is an important function of the whale's tail. It remains underwater for a long time until the air taken in by respiration is exhausted. It must then rapidly ascend to the surface, perhaps from a great depth, to take in a fresh supply. An air-breathing creature must be in touch with the air. A powerful series of strokes with the flukes would cause it to ascend with great rapidity. But the ichthyosaurus was also an air-breathing creature, at least so we must assume from its place in the class of reptiles. It is, of course, conceivable, even probable, that it may have possessed accessory respiratory organs in the shape of vascular fringes, such as certain aquatic tortoises have at the present day. But no doubt can exist as to the possession of lungs. Therefore, the extinct fish lizard must also have come to the surface of the Cretaceous seas to spout. But its tail is fish-like in its verticalness, and if we are to suppose that it resembled the whale in its diving and ascending to the surface, it is difficult to understand how it is that the tail is not made after the best pattern for effecting such movements. As a matter of fact, it seems, according to Professor Alborn, that the ichthyosaurus tail 
was suitable to a life of constant interchange between air and water, but in a different way from that of the whale. Dr. Alborn has remarked in a recent and highly interesting paper that the ichthyosaurus and the shark stand in regard to their tail at the two opposite poles of aquatic creatures. They both possess what is termed in the fish a heterocircle tail. This kind of tail is marked by the fact that the backbone is continued into the edge of the actual tail fin, the upper edge in the case of the shark, the lower edge in the reptile, so that in both cases the bulk of the actual fin itself lies either above or below the strengthening bar of bones and cartilages. It is suggested that the epibati or hypobati of the tail corresponds to a different function in the two cases. In the shark, the movements of the body generally and of the tail would tend to move the fish downwards. In the hypobatous tail, the movements of the tail would raise it and thus depress the head, and in consequence the direction of progression would be away from the air, a state of affairs which is precisely what the shark would want. On the other hand, the same movements of the epibatous tail would tend to direct the course of the reptile towards the surface of the water, so that, after all, the ichthyosaurus has a tail which is as useful, or nearly so, for enabling its possessor to get quickly to the top of the water, as are the horizontal flukes of the whale. Dorsal fin Most whales have a fin on the dorsal side of the body, nearer to the posterior than to the anterior end of the body. The resemblance of this fin to the similarly placed dorsal fin of fishes is obvious. It has even been asserted that there are two dorsal fins in some whales, but the existence of a second and of a fish-like anal fin seems to be purely mythical. This fin is especially analogous to the fatty fin of the salmonoid fishes. It is not, however, present in all whales, and when present is of very varying size. According to Kukenthal, the fin is not present in the young embryo of those whales, which will eventually have a fin, but it is represented by a long dorsal fold reaching back to the flukes. This structure appears to persist in monodon. The series of low, irregular humps, which take the place of the dorsal fin in the sperm whale, may also be ascribable to the retention of an embryonic condition. In Delphinapterus and Neomeris, which are finless in the adult condition, there is simply a low ridge in the embryo. There is an ascending series in length of the dorsal fin, when it is fully present, as in most Delphinidae, which culminates in Orca, where the fin is so large as to sometimes lie over at the top to one side. So high and pointed is the dorsal fin of this fierce cetacean that it has been figured as a sharp horn capable of sticking into the body of the whalebone whale, which this creature persecutes. 
the function of the dorsal fin seems to be that of a balancing organ, and it is important to notice that it is at its largest in the swift and carnivorous orca. Dr. Murie is inclined to see in the dorsal fin a representative of the hump or humps of the camels and zebu. Such evidence as there is of the existence of two dorsal fins consists in the first place of some observations made by Messrs. Coy and Gaimard during the voyage of the French ship Irénie. The testimony of such observers must not be lightly rejected. It will be better to leave them to tell their own tale. Quote, in the month of October, 1819, going from the Sandwich Islands to New South Wales, we saw in latitude 5.28n a number of dolphins performing their rapid evolutions around the ship. Everybody on board was surprised to see, as we did, on the forehead a horn or fin curved backwards, similar to that upon the back. The size of the animals was about double that of the common porpoise, and the upper surface, as far as the dorsal fin, was spotted black and white. We carefully examined these dolphins for the whole time that they accompanied us, but although they passed close enough to touch the prow of our corvette, having the highest part of the body out of the water, their head was so deeply plunged below the surface that Monsieur Arago, the draughtsman of the expedition, and we ourselves were unable to distinguish whether the snout was long or short. They called this animal le dauphin rhinoceros. The relation of these gentlemen gains support from some observations of Raffinesque, who recorded a dolphin from the Sicilian coast, also with two dorsal fins, and which he named Mongtore. Further than this, Mr. Couch was informed that a dolphin with two dorsal fins had been observed in April 1857 on the coast of Cornwall. These dolphins, or whatever they were, must, however, remain problematical for the time being. But there is, clearly, a case which cannot be absolutely ignored, and there is no inherent improbability especially when we remember the series of low humps upon the back of the cachalot. End of section 2 Recording by Sally Sharp of soundssharp.com